more than I did last time. Um, what I'm talking about is the, the lesson I taught and asked you not to say anything till the end. I'm going to ask you not to say anything until the end again. But actually, I'll back off a little bit. Uh, we need to get through this whole chapter in this session uh, because uh, there's, there's just too many weeks in between before we meet again. So I want to finish it today. That being the case, if you have something to say, I'm fine with you saying it, but keep it short. And then at the end, if there's more time, then I'll let you have all of that, okay? I hate to do it because you have such good comments. You always do, but we've, I really feel like we need to get through this, so that's the way we'll do it. So let's pray. Kevin, would you lead us, please? Sure. <clears throat> Father, I thank you. I thank you for Kelly's teaching. I thank you, Lord, that you give us your word. I ask you to open it up to us today. I ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal things to us and and that you would uh, say to us what you want to say. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, uh, so just to go through the outline again real quick. We've seen the word of the Lord in chapter 1, also the activity of the Lord in chapter 1, still in chapter 1, the faithfulness of the Lord despite Jonah's unfaithfulness. And then starting the last verse of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, we saw the Lord's, that, how the Lord disciplines and restores Jonah. Then in chapter 2, we saw the Lord bringing change through resurrection, the picture of resurrection. Is that not on? Uh, it is, but I'm going to turn it off. Great. Just lay that on the table and get it out of your way. And then last week, we started to look at the compassion of the Lord. We started, we were in verse 10 with that. Uh, the, the outline's a little messed up. But we started in 10 and all the way through 4 is what we read. Now we're just going to concentrate on 4. So let's read uh, chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day, it had attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many 
animals. So we see uh, some that Jonah, it, it doesn't end well, does it? You know, there's, there's only two books in the Bible that end with a question mark. And both of them deal with the city of Nineveh. What's going on here? After what has happened, you know, it looks like he's learned this incredible lesson. And I think he did learn a lesson. But something's not right. And something's not right with Jonah. Jonah believes he knows what's best. We see this in these 11 verses. He believes that he knows what's best. But Scripture warns us against this. In Proverbs 3, 5, we read, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Very simple verse, one that we've known since we were children, most of us. Do we struggle with that? I know I do. Also in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, there is a way which seems right to a man. Isn't that interesting? It seems right. It's not so much that we go the way that just seems wrong. But we're convinced that it's right. It seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 55. There I want to start in verse 6. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 6. Here God says through the prophet Isaiah, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, I really think the book of Jonah is all about God, not about Jonah. And this is the lesson that Jonah must learn. That his life is not about himself. His life is about his God. And I think it's a lesson that we still need to learn today. In Colossians 2.8 it says, See to it that no one takes you captive. Now as we get to the end of the verse, we find that we are to be taken captive. But not by the things that are so easily captivating. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world. Now here's where we're to be taken captive. Rather than according to Christ. Our freedom is not a freedom to live the way we want. That's not God's grace. He knew that God, Jonah knew that God was a gracious and compassionate God, according to verse 2. But God's grace is not the freedom to live the way we want. It's the enabling to live the way we were created. We are free to be His. So, forgiveness for Nineveh is not what Jonah wanted from God. In verses 
1 and 2, we see this laid out. In verse 1, we see the word displeased. Jonah sees what God did, and it doesn't surprise him. We know that from verse 2. And he is displeased with what God has done. This is an interesting word. took me a while to work through this. And this is what I found. It means evil, wickedness, wrongdoing, harm, i.e. that which is not morally good, as an opposite or perversion of goodness. So with an implication that the event or action is harmful in various ways. Also, it's, it means to be a disaster, trouble, distress, misery, calamity, ruin, misfortune i.e. a state of hardship in some circumstance. And then finally, it means misery and suffering. So like feeling or, or an attitude of anxiety or distress. I found the word used different ways in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 26, it's here that Abimelech, is worried about what Isaac may do because it's obvious to the king, Abimelech, that God is with Isaac. And so he goes to him and he says to him, this is after he's already kicked him out, and he sees how he prospers, continues to prosper. So he goes to him and he wants to make a covenant with him. And his reason is this, that we know that God is with you. So let's make a covenant that you will do us no harm. The word harm is the same word as displeased. That you will do us no harm. And we find in Scripture too that this word is used with encouragement to listen to the Lord. In Proverbs 1.33, But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. So we find this is interesting with him being displeased. He considers himself hurt, harmed, and it's an action of evil because it opposes God. So what do we do with this? Turn with me back to Isaiah. And here go to chapter 5. In chapter 5 of Isaiah, I'm going to start in verse 20. A bunch of woes here. And uh, throughout Isaiah, a bunch of woes. And then in we, uh, ours will start in verse 20 of chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And then go to Luke chapter 11. Here, the context is it's interesting to grasp. Jesus has been teaching. 
and there's a great rejection of him and what he has to say. And so this is what he says to that in chapter 11 of Luke, beginning in verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If, therefore, your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illuminated, as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. How do we respond to what the Lord is doing in our life? Are we displeased? On staff at His Hill years ago, as the dean of students, we had a rule that I had to make sure was kept. Uh, All the staff had to make sure it was kept, but I was the one that had to always enforce it if it wasn't and deal with it. And the rule was a simple one. You would think, why would we even have this rule? When we went into the dining room, we call it the fish house, when we go in there, no one eats until announcements have been made and we pray. Then the tables are assigned an order. It's a random. And then you eat. Well, one day I'm sitting there. The girls were quite young. I had them on each side of me. My arms were around them, sitting on the benches along the walls, waiting for the announcer to come in and start the meal. When one of our students decided he had waited long enough. And he got up, he went over to the serving table and started eating food off of the serving table. I looked at him and I said, hey, hey, Called his name out. He looked over at me. I said, you need to sit down. Well, I'm hungry. Everyone in this room is hungry. Sit down. I have things I have to do. Everyone in this room has things you have to do. They have to do. Sit down. And so in front of everybody, I got on to him. Made him sit down. I found out a couple years later, he still harbored bitterness toward me with that. One of our staff was visiting with him, and he said, I can't believe Kelly called me out for that. And the staff person looked at him and said, are you still bitter over that? Are you still displeased over that, that you had agreed to abide under? And he just could not be convinced that he was wrong. We often think that God's way must be pleasing for us. Now, we don't say that, right? But how often do we act on that? It's it's Christmas time. And I think we're challenged to think this through with Mary and Joseph. Think about what that must have been like to walk in his will in his good. 
and the struggles that maybe could have been theirs as their little baby was born in a smelly barn. Pastor Stephen Davey points out that the cow in the barn didn't have a halo like so many nativity scenes show. And possibly he had to spend the evening while his wife is in labor and giving birth, he had to spend the evening chasing the wild or the animals off. Get away, get back. I know this is your feeding trough. There's nothing to eat tonight. Can you imagine? You see, their comfort did not determine God's good. So it's interesting. Verse 2, it's clear that Jonah understands proper doctrine and theology of God. But Jonah refuses to live out what he knows. For I knew, verse 2, that you are a gracious and compassionate God. For I knew. Turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. In verse 19, we read this. James says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at himself, himself look at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So we're to hear the word and respond to it. We're to look intently at what God has to say. To be fixed on Him, Hebrews chapter 12. Be fixed on Jesus. Verse 25 here, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, at Christ, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And later on in the chapter, we see that this is all a response of faith. This is the doing of faith, not the doing for faith. Tozer once said this, Unused truth becomes as useless as an unused muscle. And I sliced my finger last, uh, two weeks ago, or last week, something like that, before today. And uh, I sliced it with a box knife uh, at work, and uh, it was pretty deep cut. Probably should have gone to get some help with it, but that required sitting in a line, so I didn't want to do that. So I cleaned it out and wrapped it really tight, so tight that I couldn't bend it. After a few days of not bending it, 
oh. when I finally took my bandage off, the, the bending process took a while. If you don't use, if you don't use what you've got, pretty soon it becomes useless. Still have it, but don't know it. We find that Jonah didn't want to live if it meant having to accept God's way in verse 3. Death is better for me than life. Jonah's not alone, is he? You know, maybe we don't use the same terminology, but we have the same, the same heart. Death is better for me than to have to live your way, God. We find Abraham could identify with this. He had already produced a son by Hagar that God said was a wild donkey of a man. And then finally, when he was much older, God comes to him and says, now I'm going to fulfill my promise. And it'll be through your wife, Sarah. Abraham can't believe this. The next chapter, Sarah can't believe this. They both laugh. So God says, okay, name him Laughter. Name him Isaac. So every time you call his name, you'll be reminded of two things. One, you laughed at my way, and two, I was faithful in my way. Can you imagine that? Isaac means laughter. So every time they call their son, laughter, where are you? Laughter, come here, son. Laughter, come here. One, Two, laughter, I love you. Every time they call his name, they're reminded that they doubted. They wanted another way. Yet God was faithful. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said what he always says when we demand our way. No. But Sarah your, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Then Peter had to learn the same lesson. In John 18, 10 to 11, Simon Peter, this is where Jesus is being arrested, and his disciples decide they're going to defend him with their two swords. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, and this is just after his prayer, if there be any other way, let this cup pass. Not my will, but yours be done. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Warren Wearsby said this, It isn't enough for God's servants simply to do their master's will. They must do the will of God from the heart. The heart of every problem is the problem in the heart, and that's where Jonah's problems were to be found. When I'm teaching through Genesis at His Hill, when I get to the story of Abraham, 
and Sarah laughing and wanting Ishmael to be the one that God blesses. I go to the back of the chapel and I grab a stool. It's been there for years. And I hold the stool up and I tell the students, for the rest of this year, this stool will represent Ishmael. And from time to time when I'm teaching, I will go back and grab the stool and put it in the middle of the room to remind us of Ishmael. And then I say, now when you see this stool, I want you to think of your Ishmael. What is your best idea? What is your best effort that you're demanding God bless and use? And one year, the more I brought that stool out, the more aggravated this one student got. Till one point, toward the end of the year, I went back to grab Ishmael and I brought him to the middle. And as I'm walking, I hear her say, Oh! And I look over and she just turns around. She won't even look at, at the stool. And I would leave it there for the rest of the class. What's our Ishmael? What is it in our life that's contrary to what God is doing, yet we demand that God approve? Wearsby points out this is the problem in the heart. Isn't it interesting to compare Jonah's heart with Nineveh's heart from last week's lesson? And we looked at things like, like Luke 10, 27, where Jesus says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, oh, and your neighbor as yourself. We looked at Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus sees your heart. And then to continue with that theme for this week, a couple of new passages. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 51, Stephen is arrested. And he has to stand before the Sanhedrin to give account. He's been preaching Christ. And when he gets to the end of his response, he says this in 751, you men who are stiff-necked, now he's talking to the religious leadership, so those people who know what God has to say. You're stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart. You look great on the outside, but you're all messed up on the inside. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. And then back to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 10. Therefore, I was angry with this generation, God says. They always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. And so, finding it in Hebrews, we find that what God says to the nation of Israel is applied to the New Testament believer. Where is our heart? 
So now God will respond to Jonah in verse 4. Do you have good reason to be angry? I was looking at this thinking about it, and I just kind of came to this conclusion. Basically, what the Lord is asking him is this. Do you think this is all about you? And so often, that's what it comes down to between me and the Lord. As I continue to battle with him, with the argument that this is all about me. This is all about my wants and my desires, my best laid plans for you. Do you think this is all about you? Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. I'll start in verse 1, and then we'll skip through a few verses. I know you guys are, some of you have got to be struggling. You want to say things. I appreciate for you, your patience. Second Chronicles chapter 26 gives us some information about King Uzziah. Beginning in verse 1 says this, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father, Amaziah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father Amaziah had done. Verse 5, he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Verse 15, in Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. What happened when he was strong? Verse 16. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And only the priest could do that, not the king. There's only one king and priest for God's people, and that would be Christ. So what happens? Verse 20. Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. They hurried him out of there and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and he lived in a separate house being a leper. For he was cut off from the house of the Lord and, John, and Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. His heart became proud. And he began to think that this was all about him. And he lived according to what he thought. What do you think? Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and it is no longer I. Who live, but he lives. How? But Christ lives in me. 
the life which I now live, and since he's dead and Christ is alive in him, so we know what life he's talking about, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do we think this life is all about me? Or is it really about the one who lives? So what's the response to this? Well, interesting. In verse 5, beginning of verse 5 and beginning of verse 9, we see a contrast. So let's look at the contrast. First of all, in verse 5, Then Jonah. <laughs> in his anger, Jonah tries to comfort himself. See how it reads? There? Then Jonah, verse 5, went out from the city, and he sat east of it, there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it until the shade uh, sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So we see it begins with him building his own shelter. But we find his shelter apparently wasn't really what took care of him. Because in verse 6 we find that even in Jonah's hard heart it is still God who takes care of him. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort, and Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. He can't even find comfort by his own doing. But his physical comfort is an activity of God. So here we see what we've talked about before, God's sovereignty, man's free will working together. One does not usurp the other, nor does the other negate the other. What does God do at this point? We've seen this before in verses 7 and 8. We see he appointed. He appointed a worm, and then he appointed a scorching east wind. We saw this word before, back in chapter 1 and verse 17, and there we saw that the word means to reckon. And we said that reckon is an accounting term used for a calculation with the purpose of arriving at truth. So not creative math, but actual math. God adds something there in chapter 1. He adds the great fish to the equation of Jonah's disobedience that Jonah might have the opportunity to repent and be restored. So now God does the same with the worm in verse 7 and the scorching wind in verse 8. What a patient and compassionate God. What a gracious, compassionate God that he will patiently teach the same lesson. If we look over our lives, we have to give an amen to that. As our students come to us, just most of them beginning their adult life, and we give them this great encouragement, as soon as the Lord teaches you this lesson, and you celebrate with learning, you'll find that he'll have to teach you the same thing again. And he is faithful to do it. Right, Porter? <laughs> so we've seen then Jonah. Now let's look at then God in verses 9 to 11. 
Then God said to Jonah. God exercises his sovereignty again in this book with Jonah's free will. So what are we seeing? Well, we see God exercising his, his sovereign activity with Jonah's free will rebellion for the purpose of teaching Jonah that his life is all about God and not about Jonah. And this is what we've got to grasp. We've looked at this before, but remember Romans 8, 28 and 29. We, we like to memorize 28, but let's put it with 29. We know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. His good, we get so excited about this. Oh, He's good. He's working all things together for good. And if we're not careful, we start to interpret it. God's good for me is for Nineveh to be destroyed. What's your Nineveh? But we find here that God's good is what? His good is conforming us to the image of His Son. I have a good reason to be angry even to death, Jonah says in verse 9. So he goes in, he answers God's question the second time. I have good reason. So what does God say in verse 10? He says, you had compassion for what you did not work for and what you did not cause to happen. Matthew 6:19 says this, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, what? There your what? heart will be also. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 says this, According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, how are we going to build on Christ? Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, so things of value, or wood, hay, straw, things not of lasting value, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive reward, if any man's work is burned up, he will, does anybody know the word? Yeah, somebody said it. Suffer loss. But he himself will be saved. Yeah, so as through fire. I like to point out when I'm teaching through the book of Hebrews that when people say, see this verse and they go, oh, He'll be saved. So let's do what we want. Let's live a life demanding our way. Did you see the word suffer? He will suffer loss. Jonah had compassion for what was not his. 
according to verse 10 and 11. How much more should God have compassion for what is his? It's as though God were saying, Jonah, if you can be compassionate over what you have not done, how much more should I be compassionate over my creation, what I have done? And the word compassion means pity, regard, spare. We see that Jonah's compassion is selfishness, according to verse 6. It was extreme. This shelter makes him extremely happy. Again, Wiersbe says this, unrighteous anger feeds the ego and produces the poison of selfishness in the heart. Jonah still had a problem with the will of God. And in contrast to Jonah's compassion, we find that God's compassion is costly, not selfish, not in a not in, a, not in a negative way, the way we use. Even God's selfishness is for our good. God's compassion is costly, and it's for his creation. In John 15, verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life. For his friends. And again in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I said earlier that Jonah and the book Nahum are the only two books in the Bible that end with a question both dealing with Nineveh. And the question here is also left with us as believers. Will you find comfort in God's compassion, His grace, according to His will? Or like Jonah, will you sit in childish, selfish self-pity, expecting God to live in your image according to your will? If Joshua says this, if it's agreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that last part of Galatians 2.20, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, verse 21. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. We can live governed by our misery or by God's compassion. What do you choose? Okay. You have two minutes. <laughs> yes, sir. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian. Major, 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 
Syrians would take their armies out and uh, take a city and take the wealth and, and then force the people to pay taxes. And if the people, if the city resisted, they would go in and take the leaders of the city, take them outside the city, and bring the, the people, the citizens out, and they would skin the leaders alive force the people to watch the city burn. Um, Jonah was aware of this, very much aware of it. I wonder how many times Jonah prayed and asked the Lord to bring vengeance on the Assyrians. Uh, I agree that with you that um, the book of Jonah is about God, but it's also about Jonah. It's interesting. He was, he was doing his best to give the Assyrians, the, the, the Ninevites, the opportunity to repent. It was a harder time for him to get Jonah to repent. Mm. I wonder how I would act if I was in Jonah's case. I do too. Yeah. God, like saying, um, when Jonah's like, why me, God? Why me? And he's like, why not you? Hmm. I made you. I want you to do it. So he had to humble him enough for him to do what he wants. Yes. Can I ask a question about what 
Travis and covering and Matthew was we could say three times mm-hmm. that this cup be removed from me, but not my will, but your will be done. We can pray for what we want, but also include that not my will, Lord, but whatever you yeah. It also reminds me of the story in Luke of the prodigal son, where the the son never went out and did what brother did. He's so angry that his father would forgive his brother. Yeah. Yeah. Since last Sunday in Charlie's sermon, when she just mentioned the words, I found myself every day saying, not my will, but your will. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of puts things in perspective. We had a guest speaker, Bob Hobson. He may have preached here a couple of times years ago. He's gone home to be with the Lord now. But he used to tell us, every day I jump out of bed and drop dead and say, Lord, this is your life and your day. Where are we going? Okay, your fault. We're three minutes over, almost four. Let's pray. Jeff, you want to lead us? Yeah. Probably got to be